Welcome to The Theatre, the podcast of the Royal College of Surgeons of England. The Theatre is an ongoing conversation on surgery and surgical training, featuring practitioners from around the world and discussions ranging from learning and professional development to advances in technology and technique. This is the first episode in an ongoing series on a theme of health inequalities, which we will return to throughout the year. The following series has been developed in collaboration with Melanin Medics, a national UK charitable organisation focusing on promoting diversity in medicine, widening aspirations, and aiding career progression through educational programmes, social empowerment, and valuable resources for Black, African, and Caribbean medical students and doctors. Melanin Medics envisions a future where diversity in medicine thrives and every person is able to feel their maximal potential, irrespective of their race or socioeconomic backgrounds. Throughout the course of this series, we will explore current inequalities in both patient and professional outcomes and illustrate the steps that must be taken to ensure equality and fairness for all. In this first episode, we begin with an introduction to health inequalities and why there is an urgent demand for things to change. Presented by Dr. Jada Kenney, founding member of Melanin Medics, and Dr. Enum Hark, a GP and senior clinical lecturer at the University of Manchester. This episode will discuss the current reality of prevalent systemic bias embedded within the surgical workforce and college, as well as the wider health system at large. We will also detail historic trends of the past and the need for these to be eliminated within the foreseeable future. Hi, my name is Jade O'Kenna and I am currently one of the founding members of Melanin Medics, a national UK-based organisation which specialises in promoting diversity in medicine, widening aspirations and aiding career progression, in particular for Black African and Caribbean healthcare individuals, medical professionals and students. In particular for this series, which is the theatre, we are looking at a particular focus on inequalities and in particular we're looking at inequalities in patient outcomes. The main aim of this really is to facilitate an engaging conversation which would enable the culture of the Royal College of Surgeons to challenge systemic barriers and implicit bias which currently exists. I am kindly joined here today by Dr Enam Huck. Thank you Jade um, and, and thank you to the Royal College of Surgeons and uh, Melanin Medics for inviting me. So um, I work as a GP and also a senior lecturer in Manchester Medical School. Um, I co-lead on quality, diversity, inclusion, and uh, also lead on widening participation there. Um, I'm also part of an organisation called DEMA, which is Diversity in Medicine and Healthcare. And uh, we're a national organisation uh, which um, um, advises on EDI-related issues to organisations such as the, the GMC. In particular, what we're looking at today, is we're going to talk about a particular focus on the reality of hidden racial bias and structural barriers which are embedded within the current healthcare workforce and the current design of healthcare systems. And as you have mentioned, you've really been working for a long period of time with regards to pushing this agenda forward. Could you just particularly talk about the, the particular current themes or things that you've seen on a recurrent basis which deals with this current particular issue? Yeah, sure. So um, the big elephant in the room uh, for many years has been institutional racism. So, you know, the discrimination or unequal treatment of people 
based on their ethnicity. So there's problems with institutional racism, with systems, with structures, and with the culture as well. And the reason why I'm saying it's the elephant in the room is that it's something that has just been brushed aside until recently. And thankfully, organisations now, like the Royal College of Surgeons, with the support of Melanin Medics, DEMA, and other organisations, to really push it forward. So there is an issue organisationally. There's an issue culturally, but there's also issues individually as well. There are there is a lot of evidence of uh, prejudice or uh, bias uh, between colleagues um, towards those from ethnic minority backgrounds, and also bias against patients as well, and discrimination against patients uh, from individuals in the uh, the NHS as well. So we have to look at it. The two key issues are uh, culture. And second is to improve the environment for our patients and our colleagues from minority backgrounds by uh, changing the way that um, individuals uh, within the NHS um, um, deal with their patients and their colleagues. I think that was, um, you know, particularly really important that you mentioned two very prominent themes, one being culture. And the most importantly, the way that, you know, healthcare is being delivered and how it's being designed in such a way. Um, I know that I, we've already touched upon which is the most prominent within society, but I'm going to particularly ask you, what do you believe is the most prominent within society that is most easily to change? Because I think when I hear your discussion, hear your particular points, the, the underlying paper, the underlying research that really comes to mind was one that was facilitated by the BMJ, which really devoted their particular focus on the issues that affect doctors and patients from ethnic minority backgrounds. And they looked in particular at many different um, factors, of course, the ones that you have particularly just mentioned. But if you had to pick the one which is the most prominent within society and the one that really needs a particular focus, what do you believe that is? I mean, personally, I think um, it's patient health outcomes and addressing health inequalities is probably the most important thing. And it's probably the one that can actually happen if there is a will uh, to change. Um, I work for an organisation called ASDOC, which is in Greater Manchester, tries to engage and educate and empower uh, the local uh, ethnic minority populations. Um, and, and the vision is there um, to, to actually change the, the, the concept of these groups as hard to reach and change it to more uh, easily forgotten. So that's the terminology I don't know if you've heard of, where, where it's changing the mindset of the hard to reach, which is the, puts the blame on the ethnic minority population and switches it to um, easy to forget in that they're not being taken account of. There's not that cultural sensibility, that awareness of other uh, ethnic minorities and the issues that they face, and rather than categorising them into big lumps, the term BAME, uh, to see them as individuals, first of all, as a patient, and then ethnic groups that may have um, uh, more risks in certain conditions as well. So I, I think um, there, there is a, a, a desire to, to, to make that change, but and I think that will be the one that will make the biggest difference in this country. Um, there are other things such as changing the culture um, in, the, in, the, in the medical profession as well. But that's the one, if you were to say, what would be my dream in, a, in many years' time, that would be the one. Because once you've 
address the health inequalities and you, you consider health in the context of the social determinants of health and you try and address those in a holistic way, such as the fact that ethnic minorities, a large proportion, suffer with poorer health due to poor housing, maybe overcrowded housing, uh, lower paid jobs, uh, less chance of progression, um, the racism that they encounter with systems, all these things can contribute to their poor health as well. Um, and then reinforced by the fact that there is a misunderstanding and uh, bias against them, all these things can result in their health outcomes being less than the, the, the white British population. I think that's um, very important what you mentioned, Enam, because I think what I was trying to draw this, this discussion into is often when we talk about change, we always have to think about what is the most tangible thing to change. And I think what you mentioned with regards to it's about the inequalities and in patient outcomes and really the delivery of how these healthcare services are not really enabling or really kind of preventing there from being existing health inequalities is really, really important. And I think what this really drew back into is there was a particular um, briefing paper that was commissioned by Race Equality Foundation, and it looked at ethnic equalities in health. And in particular, one of the key themes which they mentioned, which is what you just touched upon right now, is cultural insensitivity, which leads to a lack of service engagement among users. So that is the hard to reach areas. And what they found is that there was a particular underuse where people from ethnic minorities were not able to access or to be able to reach some level of care within one particular field per se. And that was really what was leading to the poor um, health outcomes. But as was mentioned, this evidence has been collated for a long period of time, but it's never been something that people have really drawn upon and focused. But of course, with the biggest challenges that happened within this particular year, which of course, Black Lives Matter, but most importantly, the one which looked at COVID-19 and how there was a, a, a mass number of, of deaths that really, really honed into the fact that social um, economic factors and race have such a big outcome on what leads to somebody's outcome, whether it being at risk or, or what, they, what they experience. So one of the things that I also wanted to ask you and challenge you, Enam, if you don't mind me asking, is you mentioned a particular term called BAME. From your particular experience, especially with your devotion to really, really trying to eliminate health inequalities, do you believe that there is a lack of investigation to really understand the stark differences that happen within the BAME group? Most definitely. Um, I can understand for research and the collection of data why uh, the term uh, BAME um, is still being used. But it's a very lazy term, unfortunately, um, and it's one that that needs to be changed because, you know, ethnic minorities were not uh, a homogenous group. We have different issues, different things facing us, um, and that that needs to be respected. Um, I know in the United States they use people of colour, but again, that doesn't really make me feel comfortable because then it's like you're already labelling a, a, another group. And I think we've had some discussion in social media about what other options there are. Um, there's been mention of things like ethnic minorities or minoritized groups or the global majority. So we, we do need to reframe uh, the discussion and not label and categorize all the different ethnic uh, groups into one big 
group called the BAME. It's like the BAME and the non-BAME, or the BAME and the white British, and, and there's nothing in there. And the other risk is BAME tends to, in this country, um, have the discussions around the South Asian community or the, uh, you know, the Afro-Caribbean communities. But it fails to understand that there are other communities there, such as the uh, Romani Gypsy uh, community and others who may not fit into um, a large part of the, um, the discussions. And I think one of the solutions to improving outcomes um, comes from a nice guidance, promoting health and preventing premature mortality in Black, Asian and other minority groups. It was, it was written in 2018 and it gave some standards and I like the way they did it, is show respect to the community. Because one of the things they said was they should be involved. Those from ethnic minorities should be involved in setting priorities and designing local health and well-being programs. And they should also be peer and have peer and lay roles in local health and well-being programs. The bottom-up approach. Because how are you going to uh, address health inequalities if you don't have the voice of that community uh, being heard? There is absolutely no way you can make a cultural change if you don't go from a grassroots uh, kind of level. Um, and I think that's the way it should be. It should be a, a targeted population, a targeted approach to specific populations, engaging with that local community to find out what their needs are, what their worries are, what their concerns are, and giving them that feeling of empowerment that they can make a change to their environment as well. But at the same time, not neglect and putting health as the only issue so it, it has to be done in a more holistic way i would say i think something that you mentioned um it really struck with me because you mentioned that with regards to this change that needs to be facilitated it needs to be ensured that it's being facilitated at a grassroots level and what you mentioned is that these people that are experiencing the health inequalities should have a bit more of a leverage, should have a bit more of, of, of an influence to actually design these particular um, healthcare systems. Now, this actually relays to, I guess, the response that in particular the Royal College of Surgeons has had when it comes to the issue of health inequalities. And in particular, it was with um, Baroness Helena Kennedy QC, who was chairing an independent review of diversity in the college's professional leadership. Because what they found is that the disparity or the inequity in leadership is really what is also leading to an inequity in patient decision making and outcomes that really helps these hard to reach um, areas. In particular, this is something that's also being witnessed in the Royal College of Psychiatry, where we look at the change of leadership that has happened there, where they are strategically prioritising, ensuring that their services with regards to mental health is accessible for those who come from ethnic minorities or underrepresented groups. So what I wanted to particularly ask you, Enam, is why do you believe that there is a demand for concerted change now? And why do you believe that it is hitting leadership at a level that might not have been the case as before? Because I know that we mentioned at the start of this discussion that you have had a very heavy hand when it's come into advocating the issues which pertain to diversity in medicine. But from your experience, have you ever seen this concerted change coming from leadership at, at such a rate such as this? Sometimes bad things can lead to good things. Obviously, the sad uh, murder of George Floyd, uh, blatant murder, 
which really led to the um, a greater awareness of the, you know, the Black Lives Matter movement. I think that was a, a brilliant thing for us in terms of diversity. That out of adversity, out of all the police brutality in America, a global movement, Black Lives Matter, um, came to the fore. And I think we that has been the trigger for a lot of the changes because it's resulted in members of institutions looking at themselves and looking at their organization and realizing um, where where there is these differential attainments, where there is this bias, where there is this uh, unequal world uh, that we're living in um, and to, to make uh, that desire to make the change. And um, it's, um, it seems around just before that, the, the, the BMA were already talking about racism and they created this, uh, this charter to address racial harassment in medical schools as well. So it looks like it was the perfect positive storm in that all the things were coming together for this uh, time period. And I see this as a really, really positive thing because in undergraduate, I've been talking about equality, diversity, inclusion for years and years and years, and it was never uh, registered as something that was thought to be uh, key. Um, but with the, the uh, with the leadership now um, that's been changed here locally and with change of leadership nationally as well, they, they've accepted and they've really pushed the, the fact that EDI should be core to all institutes, all programs in undergraduate and postgraduate, and it should be there. Um, and, and you know, at, at the end of the day, we're, we're, we're talking about the inequalities for our patients, but it is shocking um, to see how badly treated ethnic minorities are in the field of medicine and in medical school as well. Um, and as you uh, mentioned, Jade, about race and health that was covered in the BMJ in February 2020, there's some really, really stark figures there as well, you know, saying that those from ethnic minorities are three times as likely as their white counterpart to fail in an examination, both undergraduate and postgraduate. 72% of ethnic minorities, uh, foundation doctors going into specialist training, uh, succeeded in their first attempt, while 81% of white doctors managed it. So there's like a 9% discrepancy there as well. And I really like the fact, Jade, that you, you said that there should be a change in that leadership culture and everything like that, because as, as well as that bottom-up approach I mentioned from the community, we need better representation in the, in the senior leadership. We need role models. We need mentors. Um, Kath Wolf, who um, looked at differential attainment and uh, from UCL, was an expert in this area. She looked into why uh, those from ethnic minorities were not succeeding in medical school or in postgraduate. And it wasn't because they were not clever. It wasn't because the white British medical student or the white British doctor was cleverer than them. Than them. It was to do with how much support, how much inclusion they included they felt in programs. It, it, result, it was also due to lack of mentorship or role modeling. And a lot of that does come from the top. Because if you're not seeing your tutor that's similar to you, if you're not um, connected up with people that want to rise you up, raise you up, if you've not got the access to the resources or the ideas, then these things will happen. And uh, um, and we will continue to have this institutional racism. I think it was um, really important that you touched upon 
how institutional racism has been birthed and how this really has a direct link with regards to the patient outcomes. So what you kind of mentioned, I guess, is a vicious um, cycle, which means that these are not two separate issues. You know, as we're looking at it in a particular focus for this series, one looking at inequalities in patient outcomes, one looking at inequalities in professional development. But these, these two issues are actually bridged together. Because if you really want to solve the social ills in society, you, of course, need to actually have representation within the healthcare systems and leaders such as yourself and the other experts that you have you have raised that really want to facilitate and promote that change. Um, I remember in particular with regards to Men and Medic, because as an organisation, we have a particular focus on Black, African and Caribbean individuals. So one thing we always want to look into is how we're really trying to solve and implement positive solutions, which are very unique to this particular demographic. And one thing that we have found is that with regards to us facilitating this change, it often comes at a helms of something that happened really bad in the culture or because there was a reaction to something and everybody's kind of actually stepped back and said, oh, this is actually wrong. But with regards to having that ongoing conversation and actually understanding of having this healthy culture, sometimes it's hard to facilitate that change. But it is something that is getting better. And we are hoping that the concerted change is happening now is long lasting in nature. So one of the things that I kind of wanted to ask now to take a little bit more of a particular shift, because I know that you mentioned specifically about what you believe is the most prominent issue with regards to health inequalities. I wanted to ask you in particular from what you have faced um, and encountered during clinical practice, what are the racial biases and the structural barriers that you have experienced, that you have encountered, whether it's from what you've seen your fellow colleagues do, maybe if it's something that you might have unknowingly done, what have you seen during clinical practice from your particular lens? Um, I've been fortunate that I haven't had overt racism, but I've had colleagues, um, I had students or doctors that have faced uh, racism. So th these are things uh, relating to this lack of cultural sensibility, this openness to understand other cultures. So they've had uh, issues where there's uh, somebody wearing a hijab um, and they were told to take the hijab off if they want to come into uh, into uh, uh, into a theatre. Um, there have been issues with people with their beards as well um, and not understanding the cultural reasons behind that. I've had a GP trainee who had that where they wanted him to shave off his beard uh, without any other uh, options where because of uh, under the excuse of the you know PPE um, and saying that for fit testing it needs to be done but um, there were other options that they didn't wish to explore at that point. Um, and I think it's that sort of, um, that sense of, the thing I've always had is that sense of not belonging inside that culture, inside the learning environment, inside the NHS culture. And I think that is because um, when we look up, how many people do we see um, that, that are there um, in, in positions of influence? Um, I think as ethnic minorities, we tend to accept second best. We tend to accept our lot in life. We tend to accept, um, you know, what, what are, uh, you know, that we, we're not going to be as good as the majority population. I have had racism, uh, particularly from patients, uh, which has just been the overt type of, of, of racism of um, the little things, which we call, you know, the microaggressions. 
So it's the things like, you know, I expected, uh, uh, you know, a white British doctor. The problem is um, th these disadvantages not only come from the from structure, but as I said, individuals as well. And I think the NHS as a big, large institute has a, has a duty uh, to address that, to make people feel that they belong in the NHS, to feel that they belong in programmes in postgraduate training and undergraduate training, to make them feel like they they can rise up um, and um, um, not um, just set, uh, settle for second best. And um, do you believe that, you know, this change is equitable across the different um, colleges? So, for example, one thing that I found is that when it comes to how people, for example, view the Royal College of Surgeons, they say that it's very traditional in its nature. Um, do you believe that th this change that you're, you're recommending is, is best adapted or is best implemented in the culture that currently exists within the Royal College of Surgeons? I, I think, um, you know, to be fair to the Royal College of Surgeons, I mean, I, I just uh, before this interview, I just wanted to explore about the Royal College of Surgeons. And I really like seeing their statement on challenging racism and champion, uh, championing uh, diversity. I think that is a massive step to have a Royal College acknowledging that there is racism in healthcare, there is racism in surgery. Uh, and not only uh, acknowledging it, but then to champion diversity. So I think something is happening that's really positive. The Royal College of Physicians recently held an event, I think a few months ago, on racism in health. The Royal College of GPs have got an EDI group as well. Medical Schools Council have uh, just created uh, an EDI alliance, which I think they're meeting up in a few weeks' time. I'm going to be going there as well. Um, so I, I'm looking at the Royal College of Anaesthetists as well have done a, a statement. I think this is great and it's brilliant. And I don't know where this has come from, but clearly the, our, our leaders in the Royal Colleges are acknowledging how um, how much of a, a disadvantage uh, current training is, current cultures are, current opportunities to progress. You will always find a handful of people will make it despite all the adversities, but majority of us will be settling for second best, always feeling like imposters, not feeling as part of Royal Colleges as well, or feeling part of training programmes or feeling that they could actually lead training programs as well. So I think the culture is there. In answer to your question, Jade, the culture is there and positive steps have been made. Now, is is to see whether or not those little things that have been done so far will be followed out up by concrete uh, action. But I'd like to be positive about it because it's the first time these statements have been coming out. And, you know, I, I'm, I'm, I'm waiting now and I'm hoping that these statements will be followed up by concrete actions to change the, the culture of training, the culture of the NHS environment. I think I think that's really important that you've touched upon um, how there's really such a shift, I guess, in with regards to leadership. And I think when it comes to leadership, there's always an influence or a better influence that this has with regards to policies and reform. So what I wanted to ask you in particular is how do you feel governmental policies and reform impact access to healthcare by those in marginalised groups? And I'll kind of offer in, I guess, some form of context with regard to that question, because one thing that most 
um, diversity advocates have found is that there often has been a failure of policy and practice being married together. What they found is that there's been a widespread evidence that the UK's political response to ethnic diversity tends to be very vague and very fragmented. So in particular, when you look at the 2010 Equalities Act um, and you look at what is being commissioned, what is being stated with regards to making an equitable society, how this act is being implemented often is very different to what has been stated in, in policy. And oftentimes people find that their identity as an individual is very much undermined by what policies put into play. So, for example, there would be a policy that would focus on the language of British values. And of course, as a multicultural society, this might not take into context how multicultural Britain is right you know, here today. So the question, again, I, I ask you, because you've mentioned that leadership and how the change of leadership is, is really important and you're very much hopeful about it. But there's one thing that you did pick up on was how do we make sure that these are going to be tangible steps afterwards? And how do you believe that um, governmental policies and reform could really act in such a way where this change in leadership is actually continuous in nature, in particular for marginalised groups? It's encouraging to see that there are reports now looking at specific issues, but unfortunately they are looking at coronavirus rather than looking at the general health inequalities and the experience of ethnic minorities. So Public Health England looked at things. Department of Health and Social Care, uh, they've created uh, a BAME Communities Advisory Group, uh, which has particularly been looking at coronavirus and um, how government policy is, uh, is, um, is looked upon by minorities. Bottom line is, um, ethnic minorities at the moment don't uh, trust the government from their, from their committee that was commissioned to look at this. They don't trust the information coming from government. They don't trust um, uh, the, the approach from the government. So I think as well as the, the government implementing, they need, there needs to be a change there of um, showing to ethnic minorities that they do value them. And I think this is more important if we look at the wider societal changes as well, the polarising of a lot of communities and, and uh, uh, the rise of hate attacks, the rise of Islamophobia, of anti-Semitism, of um, you know homophobia, all the intolerances of the world um, that are, seem to be more profound now uh, with with uh, with Brexit, with um, lots of other changes that we've noticed as well. And I think we need a government that has that that that, that is pro multiculturalism, that is pro ethnic minorities, that values the contribution from ethnic minorities, and I, I think that is lacking. So unless culture and the image of supporting ethnic minorities is changed, then even the, the, the actions of creating these committees, uh, uh, looking into structures such as the NHS and doing a full review of um, discrimination there, um, it won't be as, as helpful because the, the misunderstanding and that feeling of alienation will remain amongst ethnic minority communities. Um, I think one thing that I'm, I'm very much in particular interested with, because we've, we've spoken a lot about um, leadership from many different facets within the healthcare ecosystem, whether that is leadership with regards to policy recommendations, 
leadership, which is which has been looked at into governmental policies, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But one thing that I want to actually take a particular focus on is your particular leadership. And I want to ask you, how is your work as co-lead for EDI and the widening participation lead at the University of Manchester allowed you to positively impact upon existing inequalities within healthcare? Yeah, thanks for that, Jade. Yeah, um, it's a privilege. And it's something that myself and my other co-lead, Rebecca Farrington, we never thought would ever happen. We've had leaders telling us in the past in the university, EDI is not part of the programme. It shouldn't even be commented on or looked at or anything like that. The fact that our programme in, in Manchester in particular has uh, enabled EDI to be central to the programme. We sit on programme committee now. We report back to programme committee. We have now access to the curriculum. We have access to uh, issues relating to student wellbeing and student support. We have access to tutor training. So we are now embedded into the programme. Um, and this is why we do need leaders in, uh, in these positions of influence from ethnic minorities, because that passion will drive change. Because no one was listening to me or to Rebecca or, or my colleagues that were involved in EDI until an official position was created, until we got recognised by the programme, until the programme recognised our EDI strategy and endorsed the BMA and uh, BMA racial harassment charter as well. And it's the same for widening participation as well, because I was the first um, WP lead at Manchester in 2013. And that job only came about is because I complained to the head of admissions. I said, I'm not seeing very good representation of students from disadvantaged backgrounds coming to medicine. They gave me a job, I said, right, sort it out, become the WP lead. I've never even heard of what widened participation was. And, and I think what that reflects to me is it's opened up avenues because through these official channels now, uh, we, we, we get to represent the, the medical school um, at the Medical Schools Council. And we, the, I've had the opportunity of creating this national forum for widening participation. I've been privileged to be involved in DEMA, who has, uh, um, similar to Melanin Medics, has, um, has, ha has the ear of the GMC and other important organisations as well. And it's that opportunity there, not for an opportunity for power and influence and the ego to feel big, but that chance to actually make a tangible difference. Because I think the thing that drives me is the fact that I don't want the experiences and the negative experiences that I had going through medical school and through training of feeling that I should just be grateful to be here. Professor, one of the professors, uh, Sally Curtis, who is a, a big expert on widening participation, referred to that, of the culture of widening participation in medical school was students should just feel happy and grateful to be here, like Oliver Twist. They should just be grateful for, for being inside medical school. To now, that students from disadvantaged backgrounds, students from ethnic minorities, and then as doctors, have so much to give have so many assets and qualities and capital. It's not a it's not a, a, a deficit they come with. They come with life experience. They come with understanding of different cultures and backgrounds. They have that sort of a drive to 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 change their lot in life as well. And they are so positive to medical education and to the medical workforce as well. And I think this this privilege, which I thought would never happen, I would still be doing EDI now. 
if it wasn't recognized as a role, but has enabled um, the program to look at itself as well and the program to accept that it needs to be reviewed. And the program has to report to us in EDI to show evidence of change, of tangible effects. And, and the positive out of this is we've been able to create a student subcommittee from this because the medical students, the ones that are involved in the work, they're the ones that know what, what they are struggling with in terms of EDI. And they have been embedded into curricular change and student well-being change. And, and they have a voice now. They sit at the table. And I think that that famous saying is, um, how can you make a change if you're not invited um, to, to the room? Or as in uh, Hamilton, the, the, the musical says, in the room where it happens. If you're not in that room where it happens, how can you make that change? And that's what an important thing one of my seniors once told me is that to take positions and formal positions is not to really to boost your uh, ego or anything like that. It's to have a better chance of making change through influence, through positive influence. So I'm, I'm really grateful that Manchester and the culture in Manchester is so uh, so forward at the moment that they are looking at EDI in a, in a positive light. I think that's um, really, really important because one thing that I, I want to kind of draw upon with regards to what you just mentioned right now, looking at the current commitments of the RCS, they're really committed at enabling diversity within leadership, empowering the voice of underrepresented groups, and really facilitating transformative change of existing internal policies and procedures. And so what you're seeing in the culture and the RCS right now, I guess, is an opportunity for people to start to facilitate change. Now, as you mentioned from your particular experience, from your particular experience with your hand in EDI, looking at issues with regards to equality, diversity and inclusion, as you have mentioned, you have been facilitating this change for quite a number of years. And you mentioned in particular that it was quite uncomfortable for you to do it at first, especially when there wasn't such a particular focus or there wasn't necessarily the influence that was granted for you to work with your team to really, really amplify the message which you think is really important. So what I really want to draw upon today to kind of ask you in particular is what advice would you have for people who recognize the inequalities that exist within their particular Royal College, in particular for the RCS, and they want to make more of a of a change within their career to really advocate for EDI. What advice would you give for them in order to implement change in a way that is positive, impactful and sustainable? Because possibly for a lot of the listeners here today, or possibly for people who might not have been aware that there was racial disparities or there was EDI issues that currently do exist within their particular college. What advice would you give for them to kind of start that change based on your experience, which you've just mentioned right now? I would say um, something that I've taken from a leadership course called, a course called Stellar, uh, uh, leadership, uh, Stellar Leadership for uh, BAME um, Academics and um, other staff at university. They said, be authentic with skill. So what that means is to never sort of um, dilute where you're coming from because your story is the thing that will drive change. The background that you've come from, it's taken me many years to realize that. 
the the the, the suffering or the, the hardship, everything like that is something that will feed into how to go forward. And you sell your story to these organizations. Authentic with skill. Skill means that you alter how much of yourself you show to which people that you, you're uh, presenting yourself to. So what I would advise is to find like-minded people and show your full authenticity to them. But when you're going into more senior discussions, you filter it slightly, the authenticity, but you never get rid of it. You don't uh, assimilate, as in the, the phrases from Star Trek, you don't assimilate into the system, but you are there as a driver of change. But what is key is you need to find other like-minded people who have influence as well, who can look at different aspects in, in, the, in, the, in the Royal College. And I also what I would recommend is you can't just go in there like I did when I first started in EDI and just say, I don't think this is right. You can't just go in there just saying this is not right. You need to come with evidence. You know, the way Melanin Medics have worked, I'm really impressed by your organization. You do have a lot of evidence behind what the work that you do. You need to do the homework before you present to positions of power. You need to show um, evidence of um, impactful interventions, evidence of negative things. And you need to have done all that homework and looked at the systems in place before presenting your case, because it can easily be dismissed. At the moment, we're riding on the crest of a wave because of what's happened in America with Black Lives Matters and all these things. But that wave will, will vanish after a time and people will revert back to their, their old self. And if we're still fighting the corner of EDI at that point, you can't fight um, uh, for uh, justice like this without the evidence, without the planning, without a strategic approach. You need a strategy, you need a vision, you need aims and objectives. And as well as that, you need that authentic desire from yourself, and you have to give that authenticity to, to make that difference. And I think the power of somebody from an ethnic minority, such as you guys in the in Melanin Medics, the power that you have by just uh, standing up and saying that you want to make a difference, you want to make a change, you want to bring the next generation through. These are the things I would advise in terms of leadership um, to, to, to make that change. And to sell the cases, find out who are the key stakeholders, sell the case to the key stakeholders, and then eventually, they will listen because if you're bringing evidence, if you're bringing reasoned arguments, then they will listen to you rather than just pure passion. It should be a mixture of the passion to make change with that sort of uh, calmness of thought and strategy. Uh, that's important. Thank you very much, um, Enam, for those particular points that you've raised. Um, all of them very, 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 very much important. I think one of them that really struck from what you've mentioned is authenticity. And with regards to the fact that authenticity is really what drives change and coming with your lived experience and understanding that that lived experience often would grant you the expert in the room, irrespective of how uncomfortable it may sound. And I, and I wish that we had a lot more time with this conversation to investigate it further, because of course, when we do look at the culture of the Royal College of Surgeons, oftentimes people do have to mask their authenticity and they do have to mask their protected characteristics, which really, really is what is driving or should be driving or enabling change to happen. You know, I could look at particular with the team at Men and Medics. A lot of us may be 
especially when we first started and we first established, may have not understood very much the the level of strategic, you know, political will that we had to do at the time, which is of course we we do now. But what we did have at that present moment of time was authenticity. It was that experience of I do come from a socially disadvantaged area, and I've never seen, from my particular experience whilst I was at school, any form of healthcare leader any form of widening participation programme, any form of any Oxbridge or Cambridge that would come to my school and tell me that you can you can basically have access to a medical degree. And it was that uncomfortable thing that came from our lived experiences that we were able to kind of elicit change and that authenticity to say, this is what we've experienced. And I think it's really important that you factored in and you said that in order for us to really facilitate and enable change, we really need to challenge healthcare professionals to be authentic. So thank you very much for that particular point that you mentioned, alongside the most important things that you raised with regards to being strategic and having a very strong evidence base. And I think the last question that I do want to ask you, because this has been a very important and very um, conversation, it's really opened my eyes as well. But just as as a key takeaway, what changes do you hope to see within our NHS in 10 to 20 years time through the concerted change which is being established now? First of all, um, as I said before, I, I would love it that the health inequalities are reduced. So there is a, a strategic approach to social care, um, to employment, equality, um, to uh, better housing. So looking at all those key sort of things, that's something I would love because that will in turn reduce morbidity and mortality and the cost to the NHS as well. So from an economic point of view, it's uh, it's a no-brainer that the you know these communities or the disadvantage that they face in terms of education and achievement are addressed. The second thing is um, I would love to see the next generation leaders. So hopefully Jade and your team are going to be those leaders. Uh, you're the ones that are going to drive the change by being the face, by being the role models, by being the ones that want to bring a refreshing approach. To, uh, to the medical profession, and through those leadership strands, you 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 go you you become active in the royal colleges, you become active in the deaneries, you become active in um, in in the in the politics of healthcare, and by being active there, um, you're in the room where it happens, and you're in that room, and you're there to make that change. Um, so they're the two things I aspire for, and the third thing is to for our ethnic minorities to feel that the NHS does belong to them as patients and for our healthcare professionals in the NHS that feel that the NHS is also part of them and they don't feel alienated. They have a better life experience. The the bullying, the harassment, the effects on mental health that have been documented, they get reduced by them feeling empowered that they belong and are legitimate people in the NHS and not second-class citizens in the NHS. Thank you very much, um, Inam, for all of those points that you have raised in particular. It's very, very much highly valued and highly appreciated. And I think it really needs to be heard right now, not just for the Royal College of Surgeons, but for everyone who currently has a part to play in healthcare delivery, um, healthcare design, and the Commission of Healthcare Services. 
it's very much valued for what you've mentioned, especially with regard to the work that you've been doing for a number of years, and most importantly, the work that you're going to continue doing after this as well. So thank you very much for the expertise and the lessons that you have shared in this particular episode. Thank, thanks again, Jade, and, and thank you again to yourself, uh, to Ria, and to, to the uh, Royal College of Surgeons and Melanie Medics for inviting me uh, to share my thoughts. Thank you. Thank you for listening. In part two of this episode, we will be joined by Mr. Michael Okocha, a general surgery trainee. We will be continuing the discussion by focusing on medical racism in patient care and exploring unconscious bias and the impact it has within surgery delivery and practice. This podcast series was developed in collaboration with Melanin Medics, with contributions by Jade Akene, Ayomide Ayorinde, David Ului, William Adeboye, Temidayo Osunrobi, and Eno Soemimo. Please see the show notes for links to articles referenced in this episode. Don't forget to subscribe to the theatre wherever you get your podcasts. For further updates from the college, please visit the website or follow on social media.